The song that we just sang together is one that will have a rather significant bearing on the lesson in some ways, and so I appreciate Gary leading that. And I also would suspect that maybe over the next couple of Sunday evenings, we might have occasion to sing that song again. You probably already noticed in the title that we're looking at part one tonight of a series of lessons that in fact will touch the significance of the Jordan River. And as it does that, of course, the Jordan River is occurring in the Word of God on so many occasions, and it's often used in a way to not just talk about the river itself, but as a pattern, as a matter of discussion that often has a much deeper meaning. We're going to look at what some of those will be over the next couple of Sunday evenings. To begin tonight, though, we're going to consider some of the features of the Jordan River, Reflections on the Jordan River Part 1. And I'd like to begin with perhaps an observation. You and I know very well that the Bible itself has a number of references to various rivers located in a number of places. I've listed a few of them for your consideration, and maybe you've already thought of a number of other ones that could have been listed as well. One of the things we know about the Garden of Eden is that there were four rivers that were positioned right near it, two of which were the well-known Tigris River and the Euphrates River, both mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. But not only that, as you wander down the corridors of Old Testament history, we all know that as we come to a study of Egypt, the central matter of consideration was the water was turned to blood. That was the first plague. The water was the Nile River and all the tributaries that in fact connected to it. And it was a devastating thing for the nation of Egypt. But God exhibited His control over the mighty waters of the Nile River. As you look furthermore beyond that one, we come to the Arnon River, which of course was a significant matter as the children of Israel left Egypt and journeyed toward the land of Canaan. They had to deal with the Arnon River. It ultimately would be a part of their boundary. Beyond that one, we appreciate Naaman himself. Did he not mention when he was told to go and wash in the Jordan River, he said, Are there not rivers in Damascus, the Farpar and Abana rivers? Can I wash in them? We all know the answer was no. But he himself mentioned these well-known rivers in the Damascus area. Let's finish the listing with these two. The prophet Ezra, as he labored, and we have information about the book that bears his name, we come into contact with the Ahava River. And perhaps even better known than that is the river by which Ezekiel labored. In Ezekiel 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Kibar River. I say all of that to say there are many rivers mentioned in the Bible, but there's one that stands head and shoulders above the other ones. It is so often a part of the biblical record. It, in fact, occupies a very significant place in many of the most well-known events in all of Bible history. And the river about which I speak, of course, is the Jordan River. And the entirety of this series of lessons is going to make usage of the Jordan and, in fact, instill in our hearts some significant issues and some really powerful lessons that will benefit us every day. As we close that slide, I would ask you to note this. It is probably true that at least for anyone who has much knowledge at all about the Bible, the most well-known river in all the world is the Jordan River. But you know, that statement by itself begs a good question. Why is the Jordan so well-known? 
Why is it such a significant thing? There are a lot of rivers in this world, and if you were to ask about why some rivers are so important and why they have occupied such a place of significance, there are lots of answers in some cases. For some, it might be the big cities that happen to reside on its banks. For other rivers, it might be the sheer volume of commerce carried by the waters of that river. For others, maybe it's the sheer volume of water that river carries. And that's only three quick observations. But as you think about the Jordan River, would you be impressed with me that though it may be exceedingly well known, the reason for its popularity and the reason why it is well known has nothing to do with any of those things I just mentioned. Consider the following. The sheer amount of commercial business that's carried by the rivers. The Mississippi River carries a lot of commerce along its shores to various and respected cities. The St. Lawrence River carries a lot of well-known things from the Great Lakes out to the Atlantic Ocean, and that prompts their significance. But would you be impressed? There's not a single shred of commercial traffic on the Jordan River. That's not why, that's not why it makes it popular. What about the next one, the sheer volume of water that it carries? There are some rivers, like the Amazon River, that carries an almost colossal amount of water. That's how big the river is. But that's not the reason the Jordan River is important, and it's not the reason why it's so well known. The Jordan River is just a minor tributary compared to the Amazon River. Look at the next possibility. Some rivers are known so well because of the sheer length of their journey. That in part explains the Nile River. That river journeys well over 4,000 miles. That's not the reason for the Jordan River's popularity. That river is a minuscule 80 miles in length. That's it. From here to Nashville is the full length of the Jordan River. As you can see, none of these things explain its popularity. Maybe one final thing. What about great cities that may rest upon its banks? Now, you and I know rivers such as the Danube in Europe have some pretty impressive European cities on its banks but that doesn't explain the popularity of the Jordan River. As we were about to study in this series, we would perhaps struggle to find any major cities resting upon its banks. Let's close that slide then like this. The geography of the Jordan River is a terribly interesting thing, and it will have a bearing on a number of very well-known biblical events. Let's take then a moment and at least sketch a bit about that information as we journey into the book of Joshua. It all starts, as you can see here. The source of the Jordan River is in the high mountains, of which Mount Hermon is one of them. In the northern part of Palestine, the mountains are such that... I'll show you a map in just a moment. The Old Testament reference is Mount Hermon. It is, in fact, of such elevation that snow rests often year-round on its, on, on its peaks. In fact, you can see over 9,000 feet in elevation. As you give thought then to the placement, as that snow melts and as the rain falls on those mountains, it will ultimately appear in a lake called Lake Hula. That's a very small lake, and probably most of us haven't even heard of it. But yet, as the water empties out of that lake, it becomes what you and I would call the Jordan River. 
The next slide will develop that a little bit further because it points out some numbers. Numbers that make by itself the Jordan River very interesting. I mentioned a moment ago that 9,000 feet, the elevation of the top of Mount Hermon. You'll notice here Lake Kula, though, only has an elevation of roughly 100 feet. That means there's almost 9,000 feet in elevation between the top of Mount Hermon and the surface of this lake that emanates in the Jordan River. Not only that, as that lake empties, making this Jordan River, look at the elevation of what follows. Those waters, after a fairly short journey, empty into what we call the Sea of Galilee. That sea where Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. And that sea wherein, of course, Capernaum was the well-known place that the Lord used as His headquarters for much of His earthly ministry. The elevation, 700 feet below sea level. So ponder it for a moment. The waters as they leave that Lake Ula, they drop a rather significant amount as they arrive here in a fairly short number of miles to be the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee is, as again, the waters enter into it. No wonder then the water all, most of the time, has a fairly great velocity because it is such a downhill grade to it. As you and I think about the Mississippi River or the Cumberland River, the grade isn't nearly as steep as that. And that's why those waters often rush with such force. As you can next see on the slide, once the waters empty out of that Sea of Galilee, they flow through the Jordan River Valley and they arrive at the Dead Sea. A very prompting name, isn't it? The Dead Sea. You and I typically think about sea as a place where there's much life because of the fresh water that's there. The Dead Sea is dead. The salt content is so high that there's almost no vegetation. And we can appreciate the name is very fitting. And not only that, it is the lowest point on the face of this planet, the Dead Sea. In fact, as you can see on that slide, the elevation of the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So if you can imagine, and I'll show you a picture in just a moment, it gives you an impression of what that particular matter looks like. And so, here first is a very rough picture that gives you an indication again about the full extent of this Jordan River. That Mount Hermon, as well as that northern part in Palestine, all of that occurs up in, up in this area. And then the waters flow southward into this little sea here called the Sea of Galilee. That again is where Peter and James and the others did all their fishing. And then as the water empties, it travels along this Jordan River Valley and empties into this Dead Sea. That place that is the lowest point of elevation on the face of the planet. To give you a side perspective of that, this is a bit of a relief map. That again, the darkness gives you a, a sense of the elevation. These places up here are the mountain regions in the north. That's again where the snow falls and where that melting snow will lead to these waters of which we speak. And so here first is the Sea of Galilee. And then as the waters travel southward, they of course, it's downhill the whole way. And often it's pretty steep. This next picture 
gives you a side relief view of the elevations we're discussing. Look at how significant some of this is. As the Jordan River flows downhill, landing in the Dead Sea, the lowest again point on the face of our planet, you'll notice that south of it you have this mountain region, and ultimately that's going to lead to the place we would call Sinai, where Moses received the tables and the tablets in Exodus chapter 20. With all of that, at least is some point of consideration. Here is a picture. I think as all of us look at that, the Cumberland River in most cases is far bigger than this. And yet that's a picture of the Jordan River at one of the places along its journey. Not only that, Here's a picture that gives you some indication of the rapidity, the force, the movement of that water. And you can well imagine that to cross it, at least at times like that, would be a bit dangerous. It certainly would be challenging. And yet, of course, those people in the Bible knew very well about the times of year when those waters would be more likely to be ferocious and they'd be more likely to be difficult to cross. Let's continue in our journey tonight as we reflect upon the Jordan River and as we use some of the features connected to it as a way of encouraging ourselves in some basic Bible truths. Our journey will begin by at least noting the following. I do not know the number of Bible events that occurred in the vicinity of the Jordan River. I thought about trying to count it, but I quickly ran into difficulty. A lot of references are indirect, and I felt sure I would miss many of them. But we all know enough to say this. A whole host of Bible events, both Old and New Testament, occurred in the vicinity of and sometimes on the very waters of the Jordan River. No wonder then in that light. I thought we would take just a few moments and at least rehearse some of those reflected ideas and use that to fortify our faith. We'll begin, of course, as we give thought to what I've asked you to consider. As the children of Israel found themselves in Egyptian bondage, they, of course, ultimately following ten plagues, were led out of that place. And at that point, they began a journey. A journey that would ultimately bring them to the Jordan River. Now, you and I know that journey did not happen overnight. In fact, it would be several years in time before they would arrive at the Jordan River. But could we at least note this? God had some things to say in connection to that Jordan River. Why don't we begin in Deuteronomy 32, verse number 48. Deuteronomy 32, verse number 48. In the words of this particular song of Moses... The following statement is made. And the Lord spake unto Moses that selfsame day, saying, Get thee up unto this mountain, Abiram, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho. And behold, the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession. And die in the mount whither thou goest up, and be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered unto his people. Because ye trespass against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel, yet thou shalt see the land before thee, but thou shalt not go thither unto the land which I give the children of Israel. Verse 
I read that to ask you the following. Notice that at this moment, Moses was on a mountain on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the land that he was looking at, the land he was spying in, the land which God permitted him to see, was across the Jordan River. The Jordan River separated where he was and the land that he was viewing. There was a major boundary there, a major line of distinction, if you please. And in chapter 34... Verse number 1, it reads like this, Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan. You'll notice one more time, the waters of the Jordan were an important mark of separation. And so on that slide, we notice that that was the very place Moses would die, and so these people, the children of Israel, they would mourn for him for a number of days. And they would have forever etched in their memory the appreciation of the Jordan River as that line along which he was not able to cross, but which they were able to cross. Are there some Jordan Rivers in your life? Are there some Jordan Rivers in mine? As we will learn before this series is over, there is a significant Jordan River that all of us will face. And we sang about it earlier tonight. And as we get ready to cross the waters of that Jordan, may I suggest to you, we too need to be prepared and we need to be ready to make the crossing safe and to make the crossing without event. No wonder with that in mind. Joshua chapter 1 then takes up the mantle with Moses now having died, and Joshua leads the children of Israel. And what is it that God told him? I would call to your attention verses 1 through 9, and without reading all of that, could I ask you to appreciate at least some of these ideas? Verse number 2, Joshua chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise, therefore go over this Jordan... There's our word. God, speaking to Joshua, said, Moses is dead. You've mourned enough. Life goes on. It's time to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan, thus, was a powerful element of appreciation in the heart and mind of the children of Israel. It signified major movement, major crossing, progress toward the placement of the very dwelling of God. No wonder with that in mind. Near the bottom of that slide, Cale read for us tonight from Joshua chapter 3 about that moment when they proceeded in the crossing. Let me again invite your attention to verses 7 and 8 of Joshua chapter 3. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know thee, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in the Jordan. The commandment was given. When the priests who bear the Ark arrive at the bank of the waters, those shallow waters off near the shore, they need to stand there in the waters of the Jordan River. Now what was to take place in the verses that follow? take us to this observation. Verse number 9, And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. 
And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. May we pause again to notice. There were enemy peoples across that Jordan River from where Israel was, and they were not going to give up their land without a fight. They were not going to give up their land easily. But the God of heaven used the Jordan River as a powerful sign and as a lesson, an object lesson. If I'm enough in power and strength to bring you safely across this Jordan, you ought to have no doubt that I'll give all those people into your hand. You'll conquer them. If you'll follow my will and do my bidding, you will without fail be victorious over them. Let's read on. Now therefore, verse 12, Take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. The people were then impressively told this. When those priests that bear that Ark of the Covenant, when they stand there in that water, and very shortly thereafter, that water is going to stop flowing. In a moment, we're going to find reason to be impressed with that even more than perhaps we otherwise would have been. But for right now, could I invite you to at least note this. The crossing of the Jordan. Notice that the Jordan signified an obstacle. It signified something that was a hindrance. The children of Israel were on the eastern side. The land God promised was on the western side, and they had to cross the river to get there. And so the river signified a hurdle to be overcome. But God had promised them, I'll make sure if you'll stay faithfully with me and follow my instructions and follow my guidance and obey what I tell you, the crossing of the Jordan will be rather effortless, and it'll be something that'll take place very smoothly. May I suggest that many of our obstacles in life in parallel will be exactly the same. If we will be connected to the Heavenly Father and do His will, many of these obstacles that would otherwise from the mind of man be daunting, that will often in fact be very challenging and significant with God with us, they will often be far less magnificent and far less powerful. For if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Now Israel was going to get an object lesson in this, in the verses we're now about to read. Verse number 14 goes on to say this, And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan that the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water. And at this point, if I could invite you to notice, the Holy Spirit slips in a statement here that we might easily overlook if we aren't careful. But it is a reminder that every word of God is tried. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. And parenthetically, the text says, For Jordan overfloweth all his banks 
all the time of harvest. Have you ever given thought of the time of year when the children of Israel arrived at the western side of the I'm sorry, the eastern side of the Jordan and were prepared to cross it? We can, as you see, roughly figure this out. We know about when they were at Mount Sinai, and we know the number of years they journeyed thereafter that brought them to the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were needing to cross Israel when those waters that were on Mount Hermon, those snowfall that had led to a raging sea, a raging river we would call the Jordan River, they needed to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. I think we'd all agree that late in the year, after all those snows had melted, the Jordan River would probably be much less intense, the water flow rate would be far less, and crossing it likely would be fairly easy. But to try to cross it when the waters were raging, when the waters overflowed its banks, that would be a different story. And the God of heaven had brought these people to the eastern side of the Jordan River at flood stage. And they needed to cross it then. That's when they needed to cross it. This was not just a minor obstacle. It was a matter of major issue. But the God of heaven, as we learned a moment ago, takes us now to verse 16. That the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city Adam, that is beside Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. Now a moment ago as we looked at that elevation map, near Jericho was some of the steepest part and could lead to the most intense raging, but the God of heaven, you see, stopped this water upstream miraculously. And so the people had no problem crossing. God had removed the water. He removed the obstacle. And He'll do that in your life and mine too if we'll let Him. You see, He is a master at taking care of obstacles that men may pose. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the frightening scene then that could have been the case from the Jordan, God took care of it and He eliminated that. And the next slide leads us to observe a few quotations. The waters stood. May you and I be impressed with the nature of that action. The waters stood. You and I perhaps have not often seen water stand that way, for obviously water flows the way gravity will direct it. It flows to the point of lowest consideration in, in its vicinity. These waters stood some distance upstream, congealed, if you please, like a heap. And the children of Israel crossed the Jordan bed with very little difficulty. Our God did that. I suppose that would have continued in the minds of those who saw it, the people of Israel. It would have been a major lesson. Look what our God can do. He can remove a flowing river for us to pass. And He did things like that often for the children of Israel. He brought water out of a rock for them. He dried up the water of the Red Sea for them to cross. He gave them manna every day of the week with the exception of one, and they were permitted to eat it. Oh, what God did for them. 
And they were able to see it, to experience it firsthand. As all of that brings us to this slide, why don't we stop for a lesson of observation? We've already seen one a moment ago, reminding us God can remove obstacles, but why don't we look at a second lesson? An observation I've entitled this, There are some things that only God can do. The human family has a great deal of capability and capacity. Machines and various degrees of learning and a whole host of matters that men have been able to develop and master and invent. But there remain some things that only God can do. And we would do well to keep that truth in mind. I've listed a few considerations. We could devote the rest of the night to pondering these. But when it comes to creation, for example, this universe, this solar system, this world, and everything in it, including the majesty of human beings, I know that science frequently indicates that these things came about by purely naturalistic means. Somehow, on its own, all of this developed is what we're told. That's nonsense of the highest order. The God of heaven made it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, to borrow the wording of Psalm 24.1. In Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That tremendous statement of force and direction reminds us that God's the one who's doing the action there. It wasn't man. God did it. One chapter later in Genesis 2 verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Man is not the product of some evolutionary business. He's not the product of time and chance. He isn't the product of mutations and genetic variation. I realize our chromosomes exhibit such things, but the design inherent in it the characteristic features of it for those who have investigated those matters are far beyond the capability and the capacity of mankind. No wonder in that connection, the book that you hold, entire volumes could be written about how we know this is not the product of man. Men could not have written it. What it contains, what it exhibits, are beyond the characteristics. When those who wrote in the Old Testament spoke about the circle of earth, they didn't know the earth was round, scientifically. You and I know that even Galileo appears, I'm sorry, Columbus, to have thought the earth was flat. And he lived thousands of years after the Old Testament. Many of those people had no clue what the shape of earth was, but God said it was round in the Bible. How, how did the writers know? How did Isaiah know it was round? God told him. Isaiah couldn't have known it otherwise. That's just one fact among so many others that might be listed. How many times does the Bible make statements of prophecy? Things that were going to happen in the future. Now, man doesn't know the future. The best he can assert are some general statements, but as far as detailed specifics, he has no knowledge. And yet, how many times has the Bible, with minute accuracy and remarkable precision, make statements that would not come to pass for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years 
but they did come to pass exactly when and where the writer said they would. What a testimony to the proficiency of the Bible, to the fact that it is beyond the capacity of man to have written it. We trust in that Bible as the Word of God. Look at the next consideration of, me, of, 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 the, of the statement on the slide. I've asked you to notice that as far as other things that only God can do, think about beyond the pale of death, that which lies beyond. What person is there that can control the things specifically that can happen for all people after death? None of us can. What we know is we, like a river, are flowing toward a moment of death. All of us are, and there's no way to avoid it. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, As is his appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And yet, as we study about the Jordan, we time and again will be reminded of the reality of that event and how that we want to cross the Jordan safely. Let's close that slide like this. As we ponder the control of what's beyond, we've just highlighted men are powerless to control what occurs beyond. We can't control those things. We can control our experience in light of what we're going to deal with. But look at this statement. The Word of God says that God's in control of those things. Revelation 1.18 points out, Jesus Himself speaking said, I have the keys of Hades. To have the keys means He controls it. To have the keys means He opens the door and lets in and out those that would have permission to do so. I have the keys, Jesus said. Should you and I not submit our life to the one who has keys like that? The one who can control those kinds of things? Surely that answer is an obvious yes. As we transition to the closing slide of our study tonight, our appetite, I hope, has been whetted because we're going to look next Sunday night at more things about the Jordan River. And we're going to be reminded of some more lessons that can be very beneficial to us. Let's summarize this lesson in at least these ways. Although the Jordan River is a well-known river to many of us, the reasons that it's well-known has nothing to do with what makes many other rivers on earth so well-known. has nothing to do with its commerce or the volume of its water, the cities on its banks. But what we do know is that many great events biblically happened on its waters or nearby, and that's what has given it such significance to us. And tonight we learned, interestingly, as we rehearsed the crossing of the Jordan. People of Israel crossed it at flood stage, and God removed the obstacle. And our first lesson tonight, God will remove the obstacles for my life and yours if we'll let Him. If we will, in fact, humbly submit to Him, James 4 verse 7, we're told if we submit to God, the devil will flee from us. And He's the one causing the problems. Another lesson we appreciated certainly was this, that the characteristic nature of that Jordan reminds us that some things only God can control. How well we would be benefited to remember that truth. The things that take place around us, 
People often can be chaotic and frenetic and paranoid about things. And yet God can calm those fears in our heart and life. And finally, isn't it so that the features near the bottom of that slide remind us, you see, about that some things beyond, as one example, are a reminder that we do serve one who does control those things. This evening, as you and I analyze our life, are you and I standing securely and safely in the wonderful presence of God? Are we faithful in His service? If you are, then I know how blessed you feel, and I know how that faith is so significant to you. But if there's questions in your heart, if you've begun to live in a way to where thoughts have begun to trouble you, in fact, maybe you are dealing right now with some Jordan obstacle in your life, and you'd like some help to deal with it. I might suggest, by far, the one who can quell all fears and problems concerning any Jordan River you're facing is none other than the God of heaven. If tonight we could be of help and assistance to you in rededicating your life or praying for strength and encouragement, we'd be delighted to help you. We'd be delighted to encourage you. And you certainly could encourage us if you would come forward while together we stand and while we sing.